0: Function Room 27, A Sense of Ounce, the absolutely fascinating history of one of the most important hallmarks of our existence, how and why we measure things. James Vincent has written a book, Beyond Measure, about all of this, and he joins me to talk about this thing we completely take for granted, this thing that has changed the world, been part of revolutions, tells me where the metre is stored, how they calculated it, and also the very strange world of anti-metric gorillas.
1: My name's James Vincent. I am a science and technology journalist by trade, but I am also the author of Beyond Measure, the Hidden History of Measurement, which is yeah a nonfiction book that charts the history of measurement, one of those overlooked and underappreciated disciplines. It must be a great joy to find
0: an uh, overlooked and underappreciated discipline in a crowded world. But you have actually (laughs) found one. And first of all, my compliments on the title. (laughs) It's anything that combines what you're doing has a number of meanings and is... Also, idiom, like, that's a winner, really, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I, I, I think I, I got lucky in terms of subject there in that weights and measures is is chocked full of idiomatic expressions. You know, there's beyond measure, there's measure for measure, there's man is the measure of all things. There is, you know, weight, it's, it's a weighty subject. Um, yeah. One review called it Inch Perfect, which was oh, obviously, sorry, I sound like I'm boasting there. I really just mean that as an example of the, the idioms that abound within this topic. Um, yeah. and I don't want to get too deep on this too early, but I do think there is something in that abundance, that uh, linguistic abundance that reflects you know, measurement as this sort of um, actually quite deep and intrinsic tool in human thought, basically, you know, we yeah, weigh things and- all the time. Yes, you were weighed in the balance and found not wanting (laughs) title-wise. Thank you.
0: And yet, no, it is so tempting to jump straight into the enormous weight of the topic. (laughs) No pun intended. It's almost impossible to talk about it without sounding like uh, one is punning uh, because there's such deep philosophy and the essence of existence at the heart of that. Uh, But I won't get into that just yet. First of all, Uh, You're a science and technology journalist. Would I be right in saying that what might have appeared like a run-of-the-mill journalistic assignment... Brings you to a light bulb moment about, oh, wait, something has been hidden in plain sight.
1: Yeah. I I mean, so this was how I got into the subject in that I was sent on an assignment. Uh, I work for an American company called The Verge, and I was sent on an assignment by the science editor there to cover the redefinition of the kilogram, um, which was something that took place in 2018 and then it was finalized in May 2019. Um, And I was sent to um, France for this story to the Bureau International de Poids et Mesures, uh, the BIPM, which is sort of the headquarters of the metric system. It's this international body that was set up in 1875, I believe, and uh, you know looks after metric standards. It makes sure that a meter is a meter and a kilogram is a kilogram. But as you know, as this story suggests. A kilogram can change or yeah. at least how we arrive at its value can change and, and i was you know I, I really didn't know anything about the subject before being sent on this story and i got there and i started asking scientists all these questions you know why, why is a kilogram a kilogram why is an inch an inch like where do these come from what does it mean why why, why are you spending all this time and money you know uh dedicated you, you know whole lives whole careers to this to this work and the answers they gave me were just absolutely fascinating it was it, it, just really mind-blowing it sounds
0: like that that you ask the, I, I feel like I have this picture in my mind of you asking the question of an old monk and he's like <laughs> nobody has asked me that question in 20 years come with me and he takes out like an, an enormous key and leads you into what you thought was just a bit of the wall I, I'm probably exaggerating that aspect of it but I, I feel like there are locks and keys and somewhere the kilo is stored yeah um, and, and and this is why I love this topic because the phrase the redefinition of the kilogram mm. taken on face value could feel dry mm. or procedural mm. or sto- stored away in section 3.2 of a PDF <laughs> but yet it's so real yeah
1: I mean I, I mean I I hate to take issue but with you on that but i i mean i love the phrase the redefinition of the kilogram <laughs> obviously i would i'm completely yeah. biased having written a whole book about it and um, associated uh, matters but uh, to me, you know, the, the, as I said, the idea that it could be redefined was yeah. a completely new one. Because I think measurement is something that we often take for granted, right? You know, we, we, grow, we grow up, we're taught these things by our family, by, you know, teachers in the schools. This is a meter. This is how you weigh this. This is what a scales is. But often the units themselves seem they're such an integral part of the fabric of society, of how we sort of understand the world around us, you know. When you start thinking about where measurement appears in everyday life, it is everywhere. You know, it's your weight in the scales in the morning. It's the road signs with distances and speed limits. It is the uh, information on the back of the packaging of food. It is. And when you start expanding beyond that, you go, well, measurement touches all parts of my life. You know, if you're in school. You're being measured constantly. If you're in work and you have uh, KPIs, you know, or whatever the the metric they come up with, measurement is really how we understand the world because the world is huge, splendid, terrifying, chaotic. But if you can put a number on it, then that simplifies it. Um, And obviously the sort of the big but in that statement is that when you put a number on something, you also end up taking away part of it you know measurement is an activity that simplifies but it also reduces in some sense and to measure something is often you know as I get into in the later chapters of the book about measurement in the modern world when you measure something you often sort of change the target Um, you know there's this we talk a lot about uh, in education my mum was an English teacher so it's something that I always you know was thought about she would complain a lot about how the, the the standards she was held to in the school were all about meeting these arbitrary measurements these metrics and weren't about actually the quite squishy and nebulous topic of education what does it mean to educate a child so this is the problem with measurement that you know it, it's everywhere it's useful but sometimes it can be applied in a way that is actually uh destructive to the to the goals of the people using it and yet we have this urge to measure it, mm. it
0: it developed in us do you think it developed in us in the same way that an urge to communicate are is it does it go hand in hand with being in groups the notion of having stuff because yeah. I, I presume at some point in in human evolution you didn't have stuff <laughs> like like try, you consumed you moved mm. on. And then at some point there were things that needed to be counted or were we always counting? Were we counting the number of mammoth and working out the trash?
1: So there's a couple of threads in the answer to that question. I love it as a question. Um, One is that, you know, look, I I did some research into this, uh, you know, how measurement Uh, you know, as a base species um, skill, can other animals measure? They don't measure, basically, is the short answer. Um, They they don't count in the way we count. Lots of animals can do sort of basic, um, you know, sort of adjacent to acts of quantification where they can look at, say, two piles of food and they can pick the bigger pile. They can see what is the greater reward. And there's all sorts of skills that animals have, like bird navigation, which, you know, involves maybe we should call it reckoning instead of measurement it's some sort of sort of divvying up of the spatial universe and being like okay this is the path I need to take but measurement as a skill um as a sort of practice a discipline that is very human and it's something that you have to be taught as well it's not necessarily something that is intuitive to the individual but I would say that it's it's intuitive to the species And, and what I mean by that is um I think some of the first measurements that humanity probably ever did were taken from the cycles of the natural world. You know, Mm. if you think about measurement, particularly measurement of time, essentially what you're measuring is frequency. It's how often does something happen, and that allows you to set this this to to divide time as an experience into quantitative chunks. Then the first time that we started doing this was was uh, looking at the calendar of the seasons. You know, the, the, the world is full of natural cycles. Uh, we have the days, we have the years, we have the months, we have crops come and go at certain time, animals come and go at other times. And I think that, by as far as we can tell, you know, this is all sort of speculative, that would have been the start of uh, mensuration as a skill within humanity. Now, now you mention you know, people coming together in groups, and this is when measurement starts to take on these other aspects, these other qualities, because one of the things that, you know, one of the sort of insights, <laughs> I, I won't say that I got it, other people have come to this a long time before, but that was surprising for me researching the book, is that it's really useful to think of measurement as a form of language. Okay. You know, it, like mathematics, it is a way to communicate stuff. And as humanity started to settle into larger groups, um, settled habitations, and I, I'm talking about sort of 4000, 5000 BC, the Mesopotamian Valley, ancient Egypt, the Anxi River, this is when the first sort of practices of measurement begin to emerge. And you have records in archaeology of ancient measuring tools, whether that's something like a cubit, you know, the ancient Egyptian unit of length from the elbow to the middle fingertip, or, you know, you have these sort of weights that are used by Babylonian traders. And it becomes very quickly this tool that knits together societies and communities because say you are starting to trade with the neighbors in your nearest village and you're you maybe you're counting the number of oxen or you are weighing the number of the the amount of grain T- to communicate that information you need measurement measurement reduces the friction in yeah. those exchanges and measurement so as,
0: is measurement is trust it's it's like a, it's an emblem of trust
1: Absolutely. I I think that's something that there's this fantastic historian who, uh, a guy named Theodore Porter, who writes a lot about this. And his sort of one part of his thesis is that quantitative arts in general, whether measurement or numbering, they sort of exist outside of society in a way. They are this common language that is not particular to a tribe or a group of people, but exist outside them and create, as you say, this neutral space for trust to happen. Um, And as these societies develop, they often get you know, they they get more complex and uh, more rigorous sets of measurement. And standardization becomes important. You know, it's very important that when you have a unit of measurement, it is the same when it is applied in different contexts. Um, So I completely think that like measurement is a integral part of human society and civilization. It's no surprise that it's really built into how we think about the world. And yet, standardization
0: came dropping slow, like it was ah, like yeah. the the sheer number of like we think it's complex now because america uses fluid ounces or whatever but <laughs> yeah. uh, and i know we'll talk about the french revolution later but i was struck by you were talking about pre in the ancien regime or whatever there was mm. 2000 over 2000 units and potentially a quarter of a million local variants of yeah. units of measurement in long ago society, this variation, it feels chaotic, like that pounds <laughs> would be different in one place and stone and, you know, yeah. lengths vary from mountain to village, let alone between countries.
1: Yeah. I, so it, it's something that sort of ebbs and flows over history. Um, and in the book, I sort of make, you know, the connection I want to make or try to make is between social cohesion and social power. And standardization. So, for example, during the ancient Roman Empire, you have a very you know, centralized uh, political authority with very strict standards in many ways. And that includes in measurement. So they were quite good at enforcing and promulgating their system of measurement. And you, you can see that in Europe today. In that, you know, so many countries in Europe have a unit of weight or used to pre metric based on the pound, and that comes from the Latin uh, uh, "pondo libra," a weight by scale. Essentially, is what it means, weight on the scales. Um, and that was their unit, and that has spread. And you have the, you know, the German pound, a uh, fund uh, the, the English pound, uh, and you know, the, uh, the, the French livre, which comes from the first part, the libra part of it. Um, but as these political entities disintegrate their hold over uh, measurement disintegrates in the same way that, you know, in um, England, after the fall of the Roman Empire, there is, you know, the roads are not maintained. And, uh, you know, there's more banditry about it. So it it comes with social cohesion um, and social sort of power. But you know this example you give um, of, of France in the Ancien Regime. This, this is this sort of um, instigating moment in the history of measurement where people are really sick of it. And uh, Ancien Regime France, I don't know if, <laughs> if you want to talk about it now or we can get to it later. You know, it has this particular problem with this uh, this uh, uh, this plurality of measures, which is bad for the economics of the country, it hinders trade, uh, and it is bad for the daily life of the citizens. And, And this was something that, yeah, societies have struggled with over a long time. And we take for granted now, it's sort of, this is why measurement is invisible, because, you know, none of us really worry about, you know, if we go down, we're buying fruit at the market, or whatever it might be, we're not too worried about being cheated out of the right measure. But in earlier societies, um, that really was an important problem that could affect people's lives in huge ways. It's almost as if we are
0: standing on 10 feet of knowledge that we're not aware of in the same way that we take uh, aspirin or clean water for granted. And absolutely, you know, it's the sum total of of lots of work throughout the centuries, measurement as a tool of equality like you mm-hmm. could be swindled if mm. if one person's definition of measurement is different to yours like you know say if the serfs are paying grain to their to their lord <clears throat> he can take you know ten percent very easily through just deciding how much it weighs or how to weigh it. Ob- it, ob- obvious now but i didn't realize just how much how much friction that could cause
1: yeah yeah i mean in, in the in the middle ages sort of um medieval and i'm talking i guess 10th 11th 12th centuries there was a lot of work that went into um things like displaying public standards and you can still see some of these about you know for example I, i'm i'm based in london in Trafalgar Square, there are old imperial unit um, standards built into the stonework. And you go to old towns in Germany or Italy, and you see these um, these standards, stone standards, that are often built into, say, the walls of a market. In the book, uh, there's one example. Uh, oh, God, I can't remember where it is. It's somewhere in Italy, perhaps Verona, um, of these standards built into the marketplace. And they show the standard size for a roof tile, the standard size for a brick and the standard size for a loaf of bread. And again, you have this connection between sort of civic power and um, care in a way and measurement because the citizens, oh, it was Padua, not Verona, citizens of Padua could go to the market and they could check you know, by holding their daily bread up to this standard on the on the wall, they could see that it would they were not getting shortchanged, and this was something that the authorities gave to them as a sort of you know a way of making their life easier. And, and for this reason, measurement and the sort of it, uh, you know the upkeep of standards, it's not something that necessarily causes wars, although it's involved in them. But it's something that's all often thought over. So you know. Um, in medieval times again, and um, again, in, in, in Italy with these city states, um, which are good examples, because they were very economically developed, um, you know, they would keep their own set of standards, and they would retain them quite rigorously. And if they were conquered, they would try and maintain their own standards, because they say, no one's going to take this away from us. This is the fabric of our daily life. And there were often negotiations between sort of conquering kings and uh, other sort of leaders about whose standards to use. Um, and this becomes, you know, Napoleon, for example, we'll get again, we keep on foreshadowing the french revolution here but you know napoleon when he when he is uh taken over europe um and he has his uh reforms the napoleonic code the reform of weights and measures is a big part of that and he he sort of applies that in the countries he conquers some of which are grateful because it sorts out their mess uh and some of which really chafe at this imposition but it becomes yeah this uh this way of sort of binding people into this greater community and i think that's and again, we'll come to this later, but that's a really interesting thing when you think about the metric system and how it is this global system, apart from a few standouts, uh, America being the, the, the most prominent example. But it is a way of bringing people together and some people like it for that and some people absolutely hate it for that. Uh, and, you know, they see it as, you know... <laughs> In One of the later chapters of the book, I hung around with this group of anti-metric guerrillas <laughs> who run around who run around the UK tearing down metric signposts. Uh, and, yeah, you know, absolutely just a wild, wild bunch of lances is what I will say. Not, uh, you know, not my political bedfellows, um, but got to respect their dedication, if nothing else. <laughs>
0: yeah, to, to ask that standard question, did they say what radicalized them?
1: <laughs> well, the guy I ended up spending the most time with. Um actually it was really rooted in Christian belief for him. Okay. I it, we we had this very strange day together where we went to um what's it called? Thaxted, uh which is this, you know, very sort of picturesque uh archetypal English market town. Uh, famous because Holst was there, and he wrote the the, the planet 's Symphony there, Jupiter particularly, um, and we ended up obviously having a couple of pints as you do and drinking and getting into it and he sort of revealed to me that it was um, he was an evangelical Christian, and he thought that essentially the tower of Babel proved that humanity needed to live in different nations so he was a big brexit guy he was a, he was yeah. a he was their political secretary or solicitor or something like this for a while he was very anti-eu and he saw metric imposition on the uk as this eu trying to fold us into this one world government essentially and it, it, it was very surprising to me but the, the connections all made sense when you think about them how measurement becomes tied to a lot of conspiracy theories and actually this has been the case for a long time um one bit of the book talks about um this group of anti-metric conspiracy theorists in the us in the 19th century who based a lot of their beliefs on what's called pyramidology uh, which sort of refers to this wider set of pseudoscientific beliefs that the great pyramid of giza you know the the measurements of it uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 encapsulate these uh, truths about the world. You know, people say, "Oh, it, it, it reflects the exact weight of the Earth, and the orientation is the same as the sun to the planets, etc., etc., etc." And their big thing was the pyramidologists was that if you measured the pyramid in various ways, you worked out, or they could work out, that the unit of measurement used to build it was called the pyramid inch. Now, this happened to be just slightly bigger than the British imperial definition of the inch. And they thought their belief was essentially that God had designed the pyramids and he had designed them using this holy inch, as they called it. And it was, you know, encapsulated in this great monumental, eternal monument in the desert. And that was why. I mean, it just sounds crazy to talk about it. That was why the British imperial system, it was given by God. And to turn away from it was to turn away from God's creation. And it became genuinely this really cultural heated debate in 19th century America. And sometimes, again, even now in recent debates where people said that, you know, this is bestowed upon us by God and we can't turn away from it. And again, it's another example for me of like how measurement is really tied into culture. Yeah. It, it is important and people, we overlook it.
0: It's interesting out. about listening to you describe that Christian theory is that in a way the impulse is the same, though. It's to simplify the chaotic and make sense oh, of everything. Yeah. It makes you feel easier about your life if you can draw a direct link from the pyramids through God down to you. That's one less bit of chaos you don't have to worry about. Before Absolutely. we come to the French Revolution, which we've been <laughs> skirting, around, <laughs> skirting around as conspiracy theorists will no doubt say we're avoiding the issue. I do like the way conspiracy theorists uh, flatter everybody by assuming the level of organizational skill <laughs> involved in all of that. So we've talked about one thing driving measurement advances is like the need for standardization, could we talk a little bit about this, a philosophical reason that was happening around the Renaissance, anyway, where a deep-seated philosophy about how we look at the world that went all the way back yeah. to the Greeks? There was a change there about, and I, I pardon me for being really simplistic. Plato says, "Look, you can't trust anything." and a different way of looking at things as well, you could start by measuring it and writing it down properly. Is that, you know, that this was going on and it's, this might seem like, you know, philosophical debate, but we were still living with who won in that debate, aren't we?
1: Absolutely. I mean, so yeah, measurement has this social um, function and it has this sort of pragmatic, practical function in terms of building, you know, the built environment around us. But it has this sort of, yes, this, there is this change in the philosophical approach that happens in uh, the sort of 13th, 14th, 15th centuries onwards that is basically tied into the scientific revolution mm-hmm. and this idea that actually empirical data, scientific experimentation is the correct route to understanding the world around us. So um, there's this brilliant historian called Alfred W. Crosby, um, whose work I cite a lot in the book in this chapter anyway, and he calls it he calls it uh, Europe's anti metrological bias. He says there is a a suspicion to the idea that knowledge can be reached through reckoning through measurement. As you say, this is due to the inheritance uh, from the ancient Greek philosophers, particularly Plato and Aristotle. Um, Obviously, Plato' most famous doctrine is the doctrine of the forms, the idea that there is, you know, this is the what is illustrated by his allegory of the cave, that we are we live in the material realm, and what we see is simply a reflection onto the material realm of these immutable forms that exist outside of our immediate um, experience and senses. And those are the shadows on the wall of the cave. Um, and Plato says, in order to reckon with what the world really is, you need to try and grasp with these immaterial forms that represent abstract qualities like beauty uh, and fear, but also things like squareness and circleness and blueness. Um, and so they create this hierarchy of knowledge where if you try and measure the world, you know they say that the, the, the world is always in flux. It's always changing. Life is defined by change. So to try and measure things is a fool's errand because what you measure today will be different tomorrow. And this sort of prizes a, a strain of philosophy essentially and makes this the, 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 you know, the highest form of learning. Now, now, what happens over these centuries And there's lots of theories as to why this happens. The one that I think resonates with me most is the idea that it's to do with um, artisans and craftsmen. So you Mm. get engineers who start building things. Now, you know, they are, they might be building siege weaponries, for example, or they might be developing uh, glasses, windows, optics. So these quantitative methods become more important over a number of centuries. And there's, there's a few reasons, there's a few sort of theories why it's such a big change and such a big topic. There's no real single answer. But the explanation that resonated most with me, and I think is sort of most useful, th- this discussion, was sort of put forward by uh, a historian named Edgar Zilsell. And he says it's uh, a group of what he calls artist engineers. So these are people who paint. Who cast statues? Who build cathedrals? Who make sort of earthworks? Who, uh, you know, do guns and start tracing parabolic arcs? Basically, all these people start realizing that actually the way to improve things is to measure them quantitatively. And um, and just to interrupt. Are, were they finding yeah. that look, stuff's falling down?
0: Like, <laughs> there's too many. There's too many arches falling down because obviously there's there's physics and they know what will yeah. work and all that kind of thing. But are they finding and not being glib, but are two no. people tunnelling from one side and discovering they're not meeting in the middle? Like, are they are they looking at the world going, it's not good enough? Are they even thinking <laughs> about Plato or, and, and the shadows on the, the wall of the cave? You know, is, is I, I it do, that yeah. general sense of too much stuff is breaking? We need to be better at this <laughs> or what? <laughs> I, I it's don't hard like, to I, say I, what's going on in their mind, I suppose.
1: Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I think it's one of those things where it's like, well, you just got to do what works, right? And there is this, um, you know, I think the philosophy of pragmatism that the ends are what define, the ends are the most useful definition of any Mm. method, right? Um, And therefore, in that world, uh, starting to measure things gets things done in a new way. And there's, there's loads of like really interesting examples over this time period of, Quantitativeness, quantity, quantities being measured, not just in things like building bridges and building cathedrals, but in music, for example, mm. and in painting. So, in painting, this is when perspective starts to become used a bit more widely. And the way that that happens is you have these practical methods where you sort of, you, create like a frame a grid uh, like these lines in front of you and you use that to divide up the world and that helps you arrange the picture in in music there's the invention of the stave Um, so uh, you have these lines that help you designate where one note is in relation to the other and the, the, the fascinating thing is that these approaches to the world that embrace uh this this quantitative approach start coming up with new rewards so in painting the you know the, the the arrival of perspective creates these masterpieces in music it's the same you get these new forms of music that are more complex that are more rhythmically complex because we now have a system to measure rhythm time tonality this creates new forms of music um and so and, yeah, and also this- it,
0: it can be shared you can write it yes. out and, you can and record give it, it to somebody without singing you can you yes, can could, I- could post it to somebody
1: yeah, there's this great quote from uh, this ninth, I believe ninth century, uh, Isidore of Seville, who is this encyclopedist and one of these sort of early figures of, of you know intellectual clout, and he has this lamentation that you know he's talking about music in his encyclopedia, and he goes, "Of course, music is beautiful, but it is forever lost if it cannot be sung and remembered because there is no other method. The yeah. idea that you can write it down and uh, measure it in these ways is 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 uh, yeah is
0: beyond for for them. So music must have been like trying. Trying to just post trying to describe a smell to somebody
1: yeah, yeah exactly it couldn't, be, I, I, I,
0: it couldn't be it couldn't be communicated
1: yeah it, it's a similar leap to the one we have before recorded music you know you think pre-recorded music if you went to a concert and heard them do you know Beethoven's latest banger uh you were like well I'm never going to hear that again unless I go to another concert and it's a similar leap in um Uh, in recording, in, yeah, in in access as well. Um, So this is the time period where, yeah, these quantitative methods, they come to the fore, and people realize that they can do a lot. And this leads us into the scientific revolution, which, you know, it's sort of familiar territory. I don't go into it too much, because there's been a million brilliant books about it. But you have, you know, uh, Galileo and the measurement of uh, the planets, you have Newton, you have these sort of scientific experiments about, you know, that help, work out these natural laws. But yeah, measurement becomes this tool for thinking. Yeah. Um, and it is a way that we understand the world around us today.
0: And then uh, at some point, late 18th century, it becomes a tool or certainly a symptom of revolution. I, when I was mm. reading the the piece about the French Revolution and the reverence with which the artefacts of standarding are yeah. stored it reminded me, like in Ireland, we have we, we revere the nineteen sixteen proclamation, which sets out mm-hmm. rights and self-determination. It's kind of sacred. And yeah. in Paris, there are objects that are the sacred relics of revolution, but they're about measuring the thing that's outlasted everything from that revolution, albeit, you know, being uh <laughs> uh, what's the word there'll be error, little margins of error but uh, it was just
1: i hadn't realized yes of course a meter is sacred yeah. yes it is oh, so i mean the the great quote i love on that is eric hobsbawm, hobsbawm uh the you know the historian a brilliant marxist historian who says the the greatest consequence of the french revolution is the metric system Yeah, and he says it's slightly tug in cheek but i think it's it's a, there's a valid argument to be made so to put those items in in context, you know, we've referred to this a little bit before. That there was this metrological confusion in France in the time in the Ancien Regime. France there were too many measures. They created all these troubles. Um, and in the run up to the Revolution, when the French revolutionaries were collecting the grievances of the people in this uh, this uh, document called the Cahier de Doliences, the, the notebook of complaints, measurement problems with measurement is uh, the fourteenth most common. Uh, complaint made, more common than complaints about the courts or the infringement of personal liberties. So it's this real problem in people's lives. But the way the revolutionaries approach it is not just that they want to solve a practical problem, but that they want to make a political statement about what measurement means. I think that the greatest example of this, and this gets us to the to the standards as well, is the change in one of the most common units of length measurement. Um, so prior to the revolution the most one of the most common units was the pied du uh, roi i can't really say that my french is terrible uh, but it literally means the foot of the king and this was a unit that as the name suggests was thought to derive from the body of the king it dates back to charlemagne um and and, and not too dissimilar to the
0: holy inch because kings are no. almost godlike in france anyway
1: absolute absolutely uh yeah uh, you know yeah it, it has a, that same sort of um totemic power to it that it is connected to the central authority in the land um, and they replace it with the meter and the meter is defined uh, as one ten millionth of the distance from the north pole to the equator in the meridian line Um, and they measure a quadrant of that meridian as it passes through continental Europe. They use that to calculate the distance divided by 10 million, you get the meter. And there's this transition in authority that happens. You go literally from measuring things based on the body of the king, the arbiter of all things in life, to measurement based on what they saw as mankind's common inheritance, the earth itself. Um, And so this is why the meter and the kilogram were these political statements. And it was saying, who do you trust? And how do you want to run society who is the greatest authority in the land is it the king or is it rationality science uh, and obviously there are you know a lot of problems and valid critiques of these enlightenment ideals uh, and they were not <laughs> they were not equally applied to say the least but there is something I find in that that still resonates and I, I went to see the original uh, the original meter and the original kilogram, they're still kept in the National Archives in Paris, which is this old mansion house that, you know, again, the symbolic potency is there. It used to be hosting aristocratic balls, and now it is full of all these sorts of receipts and documents from the from the founding of the French Revolution, the founding of the First Republic. And uh, the, the meter and kilogram are kept in this cabinet in the middle of the mansion. Uh, alongside the original copy of the rights of man and citizen. You know, these are the most satanic items of the French Revolution. I remember actually, you know, I was talking to the creators there, or curators there, obviously, and uh, we were chatting about it. And I was saying, oh, do you ever put these out on display? Because, you know, they had to unlock them for me and take them out these cases and everything. And they said, yeah, we put them on display sometimes and people, they ignore them. They walk right past them. And I said, you know, why do you think that is? And they said, they don't need to see them because mm. they already exist in their head. Um, and this is, you know, the power of the metric system now is that it is essentially this arbitrary creation created by revolutionaries, by some of the greatest scientists of the age to appease a political problem as well as practical problems. But it is now this system that lives in all our heads or most of our heads anyway, not everyone's.
0: <laughs> yeah, but also based on the collective work of whoever went to the North Pole and measured the distance, or, you know, like, <laughs> like the knowledge of. So obviously they measure a bit and they know how much Yeah. I presume what they're doing is they know roughly how big the earth is. They know the earth is roughly round. They know how far it is to the North pole. They measure a small bit of it. They know when the earth curves that you've gone a certain arc or whatever. All that's been done. Like they're standing on the work of all the people who've done that before them as well, too, which is very rational and scientific as well. It's not based on the arbitrary birth and foot of one of Louis Sixteenth or whatever.
1: But but it is also arbitrary. This is yeah. the thing I sort of love about it, is that like, so the, the measurement they did was from uh, Dunkirk to Barcelona and they did these two 10-kilometer uh, baselines and they had this rough idea of what the meter was like. So they have what they call the provisional meter, which they used to then calculate the, the final meter. But, you know, the idea that it is one ten millionth of the distance is sort of wrong. I mean, it, it on a very practical level, it's wrong because modern satellite surveys have measured that same distance, and they have found that it, that distance is not ten thousand. It is not ten million meters. It's it's over that, and it means that every meter is. I think the the sum is not two millimeters longer than it should be. Uh, <laughs> I knew
0: it. Is, I knew it felt long.
1: The meter's wrong. The meter, yeah. but but it doesn't matter. Yeah. Because actually, what matters is that. The The meter is something that we can agree on you know that the story of its creation is essentially a really a really good narrative that helps it stick and it helped it gain political appeal during that period but in my mind and you can argue this is not true but this is how i think about it it, it is as arbitrary as measuring the foot of the king. It doesn't yeah. really matter. You know, there's, there's nothing in, in, intrinsic to human experience or nature about a meter. It is just, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's just a unit of length. It could have been a yeah. bit shorter. It could have been a bit longer. It was, in fact, a bit longer. Um, what matters is that it is consistently applied and that it is, it is accepted in the same way that the vowels we use, the sounds we use to form certain words, they're arbitrary as well. What matters is that we're understood, and that there is meaning and a shared experience behind it. So I I love
0: that. Like when Samuel Johnson, when they were doing the dictionary, it didn't matter which spelling they picked; they just picked one. Like there was nothing more right about a thousand ways of saying "do not" or "don't." (laughs) You know, like they just pick one and then then go with that. Absolutely. How did measurement impact on maths and vice versa? Is there specific Mm. ways in which being able to say what a metre or a metre per second is or whatever helps somebody like Newton do his sums? What happens where your units are gradually becoming less chaotic and you're not dealing in perches and roots and,
1: yeah. and cubits? Standardisation is, again, the important thing. You know, At this time period, there is definitely, uh, as we started in the medieval era, era, an increased appreciation of the practical benefits of measurement. So, for example, one of the people the French scientists involved in the creation of the metric system was Antoine Lavoisier. And he was someone who had done a lot of experiments based on precise weighing, uh, particularly uh, weighing during combustion. Mm. Uh, you know, I won't go into the details out. That, but that's, you know, he, he's, he's this, you know, the foundational chemist basically and it's through weighing that he comes to a lot of his uh, conclusions and in a way like we're talking about the arbitrariness of certain units it doesn't really matter what unit he was using to do that but it is it does become uh, a communication tool and it allows you to share scientific knowledge without there being this loss and i think a great example of that is uh, the measurement of temperature um you know before we had celsius and fahrenheit there were dozens of different temperature scales that were used all across Europe and you you know converting from one to the other was incredibly difficult actually you know measuring temperature is a really really difficult task compared to something like measuring uh, spatial dimensions or measuring, measuring mass like mass is sort of one of the easiest things in the world to measure because you can do it just with a pivot just with a fulcrum and a bead that's all you need to measure mass whereas temperature is intangible and it's much, it, it's sort of subjective in this weird way. Um, and so we develop, you know, over this time period, uh, thermometers. And that becomes a really fantastically useful tool because so many. Uh, scientific experiments, specifically within chemistry, rely upon repeating the conditions in which they're carried out. And that means repeating the same temperatures. So you need to hit a certain temperature for certain chemical reactions to take place. So, absolutely, uh, measurement in this period becomes, yeah, scientifically invaluable. And I think, you know, it's no coincidence that from this establishment of, of a very consistent system of measures, we go into the modern era or, you know, the sort of 19th century, where all these things take off. And, you know, there's lots of stuff I really didn't get to talk uh, too much about in the book, like the measurement of electricity, for example, this was an incredibly important, practical task, Um, like things like measuring resistance within electrical lines, if we couldn't measure resistance, we we couldn't have telegraph lines, for example, because, you know, if you have a fault in a line, uh, one of the tricks you can do is you can measure the resistance. And the that Measurement tells you where about in the line it is because it, 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 the resistance will differ based on how much how much length of cable it's travelled through. So there's these really practical consequences that lay the foundations for you know the global world as we see it now. Everything from railroads to the telegraph to the telephone. Oh, I'm skipping ahead quite a bit there. No, I mean. that's fine.
0: <laughs> well, I like I could talk for ages on this, but there's a fine line between podcast. <laughs> Uh, with somebody who's written a book and the audiobook of your book so I don't, I want, I want to leave <laughs> some I want to leave some for the readers but two a couple of questions yeah. uh as we come towards the end in future yeah. do you think we will we will look back on stuff that we measure now and take for granted and look on it as uh, as being as quirky mm. as one of the measurements you quote in your book where there's an advice on how to standardize a measurement of length by getting 16 men to stand outside the church and kind of measure all their feet to give you like an average oh, the foot route. length. Is there anything yeah. we're doing now that seems <laughs> very rational and very scientific mm. and we, and is vulnerable to hindsight to say that's ridiculous <laughs> and we'll be using it a completely different way?
1: Well, I think we kind of have settled the units question in that we have this system of units the metric system better known you know proper name is the system international s the si and that is you know the units we have there the names the quantities i think they're kind of sensible i think they kind of work i think you know the world will in in the due course of time probably become fully metric um but there are certain things that will definitely change. One of them is going to be how we define the value. So I talked a little bit earlier about the redefinition of the kilogram. Now the value of the kilogram stays the same, the mass is the same, but how we arrive at that mass change. It used to be based on a single physical artifact, a a kilogram, kept in this underground vault in Paris under lock and key. Um, And it's now based on calculations using fundamental constants of nature. And the same is true of the other units of the metric system. The speed of light, for example, is defined as uh, the distance traveled by, um, sorry, the meter is defined by the distance traveled by the speed of light in a certain amount of time, for example. And those definitions are still changing. So for example, it's in, in the next couple of decades, I, will, I predict that they will change the definition of the second, um, which is currently defined using atomic clocks. But, you know, before this used to be just um, uh, that you take a mean solar day and you divide it by 86,400. That is the length of a second. We're going to surpass the level of accuracy that we use in those systems yet again, and we're going to move on to a new form of clock. So that's one side of an answer the definitions will change. I don't think we'll look back and think they were stupid. We'll just look back and say they were uh, inadequately accurate and we can do better. The other side that I think we may look back and say is stupid is some of how we apply measurement in our daily life. And I sort of mentioned this a little bit earlier how we talk about, you know, measurement in work and in schools and you know, think about something like I don't know like in the UK a huge political issue is always uh, waiting times for ambulances. And you get this problem when you get a government come in and says, we need to get down waiting times. And instead of just giving more money to the NHS as is needed and getting more staff and more people in there, they do these things like they keep people a little bit outside the hospital hmm. so they don't register them. So the waiting time doesn't start until they are in the hospital. And you get these things you get these sort of clutches that people do where they try and hit a arbitrary metric and they don't get the goal underneath. And I think that is a real fixation of the 21st century, that we think by measuring something, we are taking the first steps towards um, making it better. And that's sometimes true, but it's sometimes not as well. And I think that is a particular obsession of our age. You know, we measure everything, heartbeat, steps, you know, for me as a journalist, number of words, number of page views, you know, and I think that obsession will come to look a little bit silly in future decades. And staying in the future,
0: can you mm. think of things that we will quantify that are like music used to be? Like, will we quantify pain or uh. emotion or happiness? Like, oh, we, I suppose we try and yeah. do it, you know, say with pain, do, there's yeah. a pain scale. But yeah. will we be diving so deep at the subatomic level that we will... Like, it doesn't matter how sore you tell me you are, I know how much this hurts, <laughs> you know, that yeah. kind of thing. Like, is that the... Is that the next area that we dive into in quantifying the self? Or, or is it already happening and I just haven't been reading the right uh, newspapers?
1: <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think it's already happening to some degree, right? In that, um, you know, I, I, I my, my day job is uh, I, I write a lot about AI, for example. Mm. And one of the things we do with AI at the moment or there's these interesting studies about trying to quote unquote, and I want to put this in heavy caveats, read people's thoughts, uh, where, you know, you t- you hook them up to a an ECG or an fMRI machine, and you're looking at brain activity, that's what you're measuring. And then you think by the, you know, the, there are studies showing that if you show people, you know, a set number of pictures, you measure the brain activity that they have when they look at that picture. And then you then you record that. And then when just by looking at the brain activity, you can tell which picture they're looking at. So that is sort of, you know, that's a scary application of measurement, I think, in many ways. And sort of, I don't know, it's obviously still very new science. Who knows how it will be applied, but potentially misguided. And I think, you know, we'd love to quantify things. We want to delve ever deeper into measurement because measurement is a form of attention, yeah, you know, it is how we notice things in the world around us, and biological measurements are certainly one area where we're becoming ever more um, precise and ever more—I <laughs> don't know—ever more curious. I'm not sure, but do those measurements add up to anything? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. There's lots of there's lots of historical examples of measuring people going very wrong. <laughs> is all I will say.
0: Yes. Yeah. And, and just yeah. to just to wrap up, what is driving us? to continue, is the same thing driving us that's like the same impulse that made us mark notches on a wolf bone 33,000 years ago? Like, is it, I don't know, is it fear of death? Is it, like, is it a desire to control as much as possible that the more you know how each second, what's happening in every second, both say at the human, at the individual level and the scientific level, is it, is it curiosity? What, is there anything about measurement and the desire to continue doing it that's different to other other desires that humanity might have as, a, in, as, as it assumes history is linear and you keep going.
1: Yeah. yeah, I, I think it is, you know, you mentioned the word control. I think that is sort of the key basis. You know, I really believe measurement is this fundamental drive within humanity. And I don't mean just, you know, messing around with tape measures and scales and whatever it is, but this idea that the world is this vast expanse that we make sense of by chopping it up into smaller pieces by quantizing it and you know th- this is an insight that sort of lies at the heart of modern science you know quantum mechanics is this idea that the world is essentially quantized that when you look at it at the smallest possible res- resolution energy happens in quanta in packets in discrete packets and that truth i think yeah that desire to find that that measure, that quantity, is really innate with all of us. Because by measuring it, by recording it, by writing it down and putting a number on it, we can control it. There's this um, German sociologist who I love called Hartmut Rosa, who I talk about a little bit in the sort of final chapters of the book. And he has this great book called The Uncontrollability of the World, and he says that it is the quintessential desire of modern humans is to control things by recording and measuring them and actually you know being (laughs) being a being a philosopher uh he says what makes life worth living is the things that are uncontrollable that appear to us outside the realm of the structure and that there is something transcendental about them and I, i think we're straying into sort of the you know the the realms of um religion and philosophy and a little bit self-help as well but yeah. I, I believe there is a lot of truth in that, that we, we all come what, back to God eventually don't we <laughs> he can't be absolutely <laughs> no he can't be they they really did try they tried to put a number on that lad and it didn't work out uh, yeah. <laughs> but you know I, I think there is something in that it's a continual struggle and um, it'll never be resolved
0: James Vincent, thank you so much for coming into The Function Room. Uh, Really enjoyed that. Thanks Thanks for being there.
1: No, absolute pleasure to chat. Thank you for having me.
0: That was James Vincent there. Thanks so much to him for joining me on The Function Room. His book, Beyond Measure, is out in paperback at the moment and deserves to be read by thousands of metric tons and bushels of people. Also, if you heard children while listening to that, they're probably mine. Just starting their summer holidays, school bags dumped, a weight lifted off their shoulders. That's the Function Room. See you next time. Bye-bye.